When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. She found him waiting in front of a massive entrance to the Alta Pinacothek, with its arched windows repeating themselves endlessly on each side. Helen knew him immediately, though they'd never met. An American informality, a concentration of energy, in contrast to the leisurely burghers of Munich and their wives and their decorous Sunday clothes. Elias Lowe evidently recognized her as well and bounded toward her, arms outstretched. The clever Miss Porter, he said, smiling broadly. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Joe Salas about Mrs. Lowe Porter, her latest novel. It's a fictional retelling of the life of the author's grandmother-in-law, who sidestepped the boundaries placed on women of the early 20th century to spend over three decades translating the books and stories of literary giant Thomas Mann. Lowe Porter's translations led to worldwide acclaim that earned Mann the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1929. But Lowe Porter dreamed of being a published author in her own right and struggled to find her own voice. Hi, Joe. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Khalid. I'm very glad to be with you. So how did you come to write this novel about your husband's grandmother? I, I would have to say it's, it really started um, after her daughter, my mother-in-law, died, and I came into possession of a box of research that she had done herself. Um, she was planning to write a memoir about her parents and I, at some point, read through all of this and just became intrigued and fascinated by this woman who I'd known about for a long time, but didn't feel that I knew well at all. But reading these letters and files and photos and reminiscences and so on, she began to take form in front of me. And I, I was very caught by, by her story, by her dilemma as a woman, as a writer as a translator. Mm. Can you talk about how you researched the life of Helen Lowe Porter? If she died in 1963, there were probably still relatives alive who knew her and could share personal stories? Yes, certainly, yeah. Um, well, her, my, my husband's generation, um, many cousins, the, many of whom I, I know, um, so I talked to some of them. Um, my mother-in-law also had asked um, some of them to fill in a questionnaire. Um, and that was really helpful and interesting, their, their memories from when they were children. Um, so, I, you know, I, I did have access to, to family, family members, and that was, that was very helpful. But I also, I read a lot of her correspondence with Mann, with their publisher Knopf, um, with other people in her life, with her husband. She had a very interesting complicated, problematic marriage. 
and the letters were very illuminating to me. I also spent hours in the Morgan Library with her husband's little tiny pocket diaries, which was also very revealing. Um, and I visited some of the places that she spent time or that she lived. Um, I went to Oxford and looked at the house where she had lived and the Oxford College where her husband had taught. Um, I'm familiar with some of the places that were important to her because they've been important to me as well, like the island in Maine where she used to go in the summers. I've gone there myself to the same cottage, which was her, her cottage. That was her refuge, and I know it very well. So it was helpful to the degree to which there's a little bit of overlap, you know, between my life and hers that contributed to my research. Mm. Um, Helen was inspired by her aunt, Charlotte, a poet and founder of a poetry magazine that brought European writers to American readers. Can you say more about Aunt Charlotte? Yeah, I, I don't know a whole lot about her, but she was a very, um, she was a significant figure in, in American literature. She founded this magazine called Poet Lore, and she did she had a mission to introduce um, European writers to American readers. And that's how Helen became involved in translation to start with. She had studied languages at university and her aunt kind of um, encouraged her to, to do translation for her magazine. Um, Charlotte was an interesting character. She had, she lived in a, what was then called a Boston marriage with another woman for many years and the two of them and their and their friends would would gather on this island that I mentioned um, a minute ago and act out Shakespeare in the woods and um, spend wonderful womanly literary times together. I wish I did know more about her, but um, she was a, a very big influence on on Helen and she advised Helen. She was the one who advised Helen not to get married, that you get married and you can't do your work. And <laughs> Helen didn't obey her <laughs> and struggled with yeah. her work. Um, how was it, uh, Helen was fluent in German, clearly, but fluency is not, a su not sufficient preparation to translate. So how, was she, how did she manage to convey the underlying spirit and meaning of Thomas Mann's erudite German? in her very first translation, which was uh, Budenbrooks. That's right, Budenbrooks, which came out exactly 100 years ago. She, she would always say that her German actually wasn't very good, and some of the critics of her translations would agree, but she did study languages, then she went to Munich to um, study more and practice German, and that's where she met her husband, Elias. And then she she was doing translation all along. So before she long before she translated Thomas Mann, she was translating other German writers and technical articles, academic um, articles. So she was kind of honing her craft. And she did translation for an English uh, publisher whose name I don't remember right now. And it was through that that she was recruited to translate Thomas Mann. She was no, she was recommended 
by the editor at this other publisher. The process of her translating Man was a little bit more complicated than I described it in the book, but mm -hmm. as other topics, I, I streamlined the process a bit. So she just kept learning. And then when she began to work on Thomas Mann's work, as you say, very erudite, very dense, very philosophical, she, from everything that I can read, and she wrote about this herself, she put enormous effort into it. She was totally committed. She studied, she got huge um, volumes of reference material. She really explored the whole context of what the novel was. And he wrote not only very erudite and very um, complicated sentences and, and so on, but he also loved to bring in very obscure, archaic dialogue, dialects, which she struggled to find an English counterpart for, and sometimes had to give up on that. So it was, it was extremely challenging, and she was as conscientious as she could be. And she brought her artist self into it very much. So mm -hmm. she would translate literally as you have to. And then she would work on what she had in front of her until it really flowed and it was, it, it captured the spirit of what Man was trying to do. So that's a, a, a very intuitive and artistic mm -hmm. process on top of the, the sort of labor of finding English equivalents for every word, every sentence, every paragraph, right. every chapter. Yeah, you're right. Even those who haven't read Helen's translation might know about the Budenbrook's effect, you know, which is that family businesses tend to decline over three generations or so. It's been it's another phrase for um, saying all good things must come to an end. The book might have gotten too long. Your book, I mean, this is low porter might have gotten too long had you shared helen's thoughts about everything she translated but does she mention did, did you come across how she felt about buddenbrooks her very first man translation she wrote a long essay about called on translating thomas mann and it's included in this biography of her that came out just a few years after she died and I don't remember offhand what she says specifically about Buddenbrooks, but she does write. She writes in this very lovely sort of informal, graceful way about her whole life as a as a translator. And also very she's she's someone who is always quite self-deprecating about herself. So she she underplays her achievement. I would have to look at that to remember exactly, specifically what she says about Woodenbrooks. I know that it was an enormous, enormous job. She, she does write at some point about how it arrived at her house in these two volumes and, um, you know, just the massive prospect of it. Eight, I think it was 800 pages. Mm -hmm. um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a massive volume, as you say. I mean, the whole saga of this family over over generations 
And she says it felt like uh, she said she felt like translating Thomas Mann would be like translating Shakespeare. And <laughs> it was before Google, it must have been overwhelming because all she had was a, a shelf of dictionaries. Right, right. And of course, that was my my fictional Helen who said that, that it was about the responsibility was like um, bringing Shakespeare to people who weren't English speakers. Um, I don't know if she ever had that thought or not. She might well have because Shakespeare, <laughs> she was Shakespearean language, as I said, at one point in the book is her it was her mother tongue. She, she grew up knowing Shakespeare. She thought she thought in Shakespearean terms, she wrote this play in Shakespearean blank verse. So she might well have made that comparison. Yeah. So uh, I spent weeks reading The Magic Mountain while I was sick one summer years ago, 40 years ago, and I loved it. But I will admit to zipping through some of the long philosophical meandering. Could you say something about Helen's take on Mann's philosophical, long philosophical passages? So I do know that she had a strong philosophical bent herself. And... As you probably know, there was this controversy when, when uh, Knopf had um, the Magic Mountain in his hands to be translated. He, of course, he and his wife Blanche asked Helen to do it because she had done Buddenbrooks and Buddenbrooks had been very successful and there was kind of renewed speculation about the Nobel Prize and so on. Um, but... Um, yeah, she, it was, she, she, she um, oh, sorry, what I wanted to say was that um, Man jumped in and said, I don't want her to translate. I don't want her to um, be the translator because this is a very philosophical volume and I need a man. I need a man's mind. I need a man's mind because a woman's mind couldn't comprehend the philosophical depths of this book. So she was very distressed, upset, offended, and hurt because he had really praised um, Buddenbrooks. Um, but the Knops really wanted to keep her, and they kind of argued with Mann, and then um, he finally gave in, but he resented it. So mm -hmm. I'm just saying this because she, it, this is her cup of tea, you know, a book like this. This is exactly, as she said herself, she said something like, it's exactly this kind of thing I want to dig my way into. So she relished it. Wow. So Helen dreamed of writing a novel. She had a character named Ruth, and she tried to write every day. What happened to her dream? So again, the, the early part of my novel where she is trying very hard to write this story, this novel called The Artist, about a woman who has has to choose between her art and love in her life and so on, family. Um, it was, um, that, that was fictional. I don't know if Helen did write, try to write a novel in her young years, but I do know that throughout her life, she was writing, she was writing her own short stories and poems, which sadly, many of them have disappeared. Um, and then she did later in her life, she wrote a play which was produced and was very successful. And then when she retired 
as Mann's translator by now in her 70s, late 70s, she wrote a novel. She did write a novel at that point. It was called Sea Change. And we know about it because Mann wrote a kind of very positive critique of it. He, he, she sent it to him and his wife, and they liked it very much. It never got published, and the manuscript has disappeared. Mm. So it's a mystery, which I'm still trying to solve. Um, she worked, she did creative writing all her life, and very little of it has survived, even less of it um, was published. Huh. Did did she leave a journal of some kind, or did you invent the scenes between her and Elias, like those during their courtship? She didn't leave a journal. She left very little documentation of her own life compared to her husband, who documented everything. Um, so I'm I'm imagining from what I do know. So I know a fair amount from my mother-in-law Patricia. She talked about her parents a lot, um, including the kind of unusual nature of their marriage. I knew about that from her. So I'm extrapolating. I'm taking what I know and imagining a whole life and a set of characters around the, um, around the, the facts that I know from my research and from my own involvement in the family. Hold on a second. So the girl, her, the kids knew that it, that Elias had demanded an open marriage. I was wondering if Helen wrote about it, or or maybe I thought maybe it came down through the generations. It was kind of family lore. But you're saying, no, yeah, not. Um, they didn't know about it as children, but when Elias was quite elderly, um, he used to go to Key West every uh, winter, and Patricia, my mother-in-law would sometimes go with him to help him. And it was while they were there, when he was coming towards the end of his life, he told Patricia, he, he told her the whole story. He told her that when they were young, he asked, he claimed that he had, his sex drive was so strong that he needed to sleep with other women. And she accepted it. She apparently accepted it. I imagine she didn't like it at all. I don't know that for sure. But then much later, when their children were young adults, he had a relationship with their eldest daughter's close friend, close friend of the family, and that broke up the marriage. Oh, that was so I know this, I know this from, from Patricia. Yeah, that was a heartbreaking part of it. Towards the end of her life, Helen gives away all her copies of Thomas Mann, and talks about her work for him as servitude. Can you expound on that a bit? So again, this is my fictionalized, my imagination. Um, I wanted, I wanted my Helen to liberate herself from Thomas Mann. In, in reality, Helen, I don't know if she would have thought of it as servitude. She might well have. But she was devoted, she was absolutely devoted to this writer, and she recognized what a great man he is, what a great writer he is. She was utterly committed to the work and did it to the best of her, 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 her ability. So in my story, I, I, wanted to, I wanted my fictional Helen 
to have some freedom from that. And so I sort of invented this, you, you could say, sort of metaphorical gesture of, of giving away his books um, to give herself a little space. And in the book, she looks at this empty space and she creates her own work of art. And yeah. that's just a vision that I had as I was writing. Um, it, nothing like that literally happened, but I hope in some, on some, some level of it, it did, that she found some, some peacefulness and some sense of space and, and freedom from her work by the end of her life. But then who inherited all those copies of her translations of Thomas Mann? Well, as I said, that was fictional. <laughs> no, but um, in real life, who inherited? Uh, and, okay, so she she did she gave away her papers and uh, important books to Yale, Yale University. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. Bummer for you. <laughs> okay. I mean, I do have um, I have copies of several of the novels. Um, I don't know if they were copies that that he gave. Um, Helen and, and Helen inherited from her mother, or whether they were just copies that, that came from plot, I don't know, but they're old, old copies. I have a beautiful little original um, edition of this, his short story, which was published as a separate book called Early Sorrow. Mm. It's just this lovely little edition with thick pages and um, a lithograph on the, on the title page. So, it was a lovely novel. Thank you so much uh, for letting me read it. What are you working on next? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I, I feel something new hovering around me. It hasn't quite landed. I'm going to give myself space. I'm still very busy with launching this one, but I'm sort of excited to see what's going to take form when it, when it comes a little closer. I hope I'll have some time to watch and listen and wait and see what happens. Ooh, sounds intriguing. Good luck with that. Thank you so much for joining me today, Joe. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Kelly. A pleasure for me as well.